Good morning. Uh, this morning we are going to talk about what does it look like for us to choose love in a culture of fear. Um, and it's a really important message. And But before I go, I bring greetings from Covenant offices and particularly uh, some people who have deep connections here, both Evelyn Johnson and um, Aaron Johnson. Uh, so I bring greetings from our friends back in Chicago where I derive, well, where I currently live. Um, but we live in a critical moment right now where fear is separating us and fear is distorting the witness of the church. Let's just be honest about it. Um, there are people who don't know the love of God because all they see is the division within the body. And so we, we need to have some conversations about what does it mean for us to actively choose to love in the midst of a culture of fear like that? And how do we muster the courage to choose love when fear is so pervasive? And so when we talk about some of these things, I think um, the person who gives us some of the best insights on this is John. And so we'll spend a lot of time in John. And as a third generational covenanter, I know the age-old question that we always want to know is where is it written? So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at where it's written and what love is actually intended to do in our world. And so um, in the passage, we'll come back to the passage that uh, was just read uh, before, but I'm going to go ahead and telegraph to you um, kind of what really the the culmination of this is, and we find it in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And what's really interesting about this is I've, led, I've read this passage over and over again, and it was something that as a child, uh, you know, we were pretty steeped in, but I never really picked up on this last piece of the final sentence. It says, if you love one another. So this is a conditional reality. Jesus is saying that the world will know that we are his disciples if we choose to love. Particularly if we choose to love in a culture of fear that teaches us not to love, to not see ourselves as connected to each other. Um, and all too often, uh, to go back to the uh, song we were singing together, This Little Light of Mine, I think when it's been in a culture of fear or a really challenging time in our nation, the church has hid its light under a bushel, and we have not been that light that people have been able to identify who Jesus is through the way that we choose to love one another. And so we're going to kind of talk about um, why that is and what it takes for us to muster this courage. I think the first thing it takes for us is to redefine love. Love is one of those words that means everything and nothing at the same time. We love donuts. We love the Huskers. We love our spouse. Hopefully there is a different <laughs> variation in what we mean in the intensity when we deploy that word love. But love is something that we all talk about. Love is something that we all know. But I think when it becomes something that means all things and nothing at the same time, it has very little impact in our world and in our witness. And so let's drill down a little bit more and see what is the specific nature of love that scripture is calling us to be about as the people of God in a divided world. So from the verse passage, uh, the passage that was read to us, there are a couple of principles that we see about love. Our love should produce reconciliation and unity. 
We'll drill down a lot of reconciliation later this afternoon, but reconciliation takes the integrity to name what is broken, the confession to realize how it got broken, and the integrity to do the work to fix it. So it's not this little kumbaya kind of thing we like to talk about where we all just stand in a big picture together and hold hands and do these marketing slogans. Reconciliation is hard work. Reconciliation acknowledges that for some new life to come about, something has to be put to death. Uh, I oftentimes used to say when I was a congregational pastor, uh, for resurrection to happen, crucifixion had to happen first. And we are people who are getting infatuated with the fact that we can be beneficiaries of the resurrection without having to endure crucifixion. But for us to be about the work of resurrection, we have to see the brokenness, crucify that, and give space for God to do what God is trying to do new in and through us in our witness. And so it should produce reconciliation, which will in turn produce unity. Our love has a missional and an evangelistic purpose. People believe in Jesus because of the love and unity that our message produces. So if our world and our, if our ministry and our message isn't producing love and reconciliation, people will miss God. There is a lot at stake in how we choose to love one another. As new creations, our love testifies to the fact that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who live in and through us. And finally, our love should make God known in the world and God's love shown in the world. This love isn't just about us. This love is some, about something deeper that transcends us and that flows through us into the world. So if love is something that God is so intentional about and to the point that he's praying to the Father that love is something that we embody, that we live out, that we demonstrate in our world, if he gives us a new commandment that we are supposed to love each other the way that God, Jesus loved us, why is it that we choose not to love? Because again, at the beginning of the passage, it says, if you choose to love. So why do we choose not to love? Well, the obvious Bible answer, is, the Sunday school answer is sin. But again, I think sin is one of those things that can mean everything and nothing at the same time. So let's drill down and talk about sin a little bit more. Sin divides us and keeps us from loving our neighbor as Jesus loved us. Sin has watered down our definition of love, keeping us from radically and sacrificially choosing to love one another, especially across lines of difference. Sin distorts how we see and interact with each other. Sin impacts personal relationships, but it also taints laws, systems, structures, and our socialization to how we see and, again, interact with each other. Um, and then sin, we need to understand, causes us to doubt God's love for us, and it, buy, it makes us buy into the lie that we don't belong to each other. So I think these lines of difference that exist in our world have really been a hindrance to Christian witness, be it racism, be it classism, be it sexism, be it all of these different lines of differences that dictate how the world outside interacts with each other. The truth is it all too often dictates how we as the body of Christ interact with one another as well. And so we have to name that sin if we're gonna put it to death so that we can create a new kind of community where those same things don't dictate how we do life together as Christians. And then finally, we need to know that sin is inherently connected to the love of money. Scripture tells us for what? Money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it's driven by fear-mongering. And so fear is something I really don't want to let us escape from because it's so palatable right now. 
Um, so first, let's look at how Jesus loved us, because that's what the text keeps telling us, to go back to how Jesus loved us, that's how we should love one another. So let's look at how Jesus loved us. The classic text with this is John 3.16, for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only begotten son for us. Um, and uh, for God did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so that's the classic text. But then if we drill down on that a little bit more, we see that in Romans 5, 8, it tells us uh, that God proved his love for us by dying for us while we were yet sinners. Scripture is clear. While we were enemies of God, Christ chose to give his life for us. So God didn't wait until we got our act together till we got all cleaned up and polished and were presentable. While we were wretched sinners, Jesus chose to sacrifice his life for us. So this lets us know that we can't have conditions with our love and say that, oh, well, we have to wait till a person gets cleaned up and polished and ready to fit into our church. That's when we love them. No, we're called to love all people, no matter where they are and what they're involved in, believing that the love of God can restore, redeem, and reconcile the, 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 the separation that sin is causing in their life from God and from us as the community of believers. Then, let's go even more practical. We talk about John 6, 3.16, I mean, John 3.16 as the quintessential uh, passage of, of about love, but I would even say 1 John 3.16 is just as important and even, even more challenging. Um, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and ha but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. This is the tangible nature of the church's love. When we see pain in the world, we don't respond like the rest of the world. We don't apathetically say, oh, well, that's not impacting me. Oh, that's not my problem. Oh, that person created that situation by the decisions they made in their lives. We stop and we take time to tend to the need that's before us. Um, Jesus is just the, the quintessential example of this. We see this over and over again in scripture where Jesus is on his way to do ministry and he comes across with somebody who has a need. Or we think about the, the woman who's bleeding and she touches his garment. He's on his way somewhere, but he stops to tend to the need before him. Um, Dr. King says about the story of the Good Samaritan, he says, when you actually unpack that story, he said, the first couple of people, the ministry people, asked the question, if I stop, what will happen to me? But he said the Good Samaritan actually reverses that question and says, if I don't stop, what will happen to my neighbor? And that's the orientation that we as the people have, God have to have if we prioritize love. When we see brokenness around us, we don't prioritize our own self-interest, but we live into a Philippians 2 type model and we actually take on the mindset of Christ and we put the interest of our neighbor before our own interest and make time to make love tangibly illustrated in our world. So when we talk about these things, we talk about sin on the individual level, I think most of us get that, but I think as evangelicals in particular, we have done a bad job of talking about how individual sin grows into systemic sin and how systemic sin also produces fear that keeps us from loving our neighbor and seeing our neighbor as somebody that we're connected to. Um, one of the ways that I think we 
have failed to really unpack this is through not talking about a biblical concept called um, empire. And so empire is a critical theme for us if we're trying to understand why we don't choose to love one another. There's a, a biblical theologian by the name of Daniel Grudy. He writes this. He says, in the Bible, Egypt is the first in a series of empires, including Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that embody power structures that benefit the elite, enslave the poor, and dominate the weak. The notion of empire often describes political entities, but it is not limited to them. And this is the key. Symbolically, the empire represents any power that aggregates to itself the power that belongs to God alone or any group or institution that subjugates the poor and the needy for its own advantages. And he goes on to talk about the unspoken reality is that the entire Bible is written by people who are actually in the context of empire, who are suffering on the bottom side of empire. And it, Christianity is a faith that calls us to resist the imperial ethos to be complicit with this type of oppression and subjugation of the least of these or the poor amongst us in our society so that some people have a lot and other people have a little. The gospel is supposed to call us into a different ethic that interrupts that type of imperial ethos that says that God is a, not a God of scarcity, but God is a God of abundance who has created enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. And we have to understand how this sin that comes from empire is rooted in the love of money. And so I'll unpack this a little bit more uh, because sometimes people are like, okay, give me a Bible verse where I can hang this on, my, hang my hat on. So the Bible verse to hang your hat on in regards to this is uh, Exodus chapter 2. So in Exodus chapter 2, we see how there is a thriving Egyptian empire, but it's all predicated upon the oppression of the Hebrew people. Everything that the Egyptians have, all the power, all their prosperity, all of their influence is rooted, upon, rooted in the subjugation of Hebrews. And so to give us a couple key verses uh, so we don't have to read the entire text, um, we see that all of the oppression that the uh, Hebrew people endure are rooted in Pharaoh's personal fear. So it says in verse 9, Pharaoh says to his people, Look, the Israelites are becoming more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, i.e. oppress them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Literally everything that comes after this point is directly rooted in Pharaoh's fear. He creates laws that say that all Hebrew boys must be put to death. He says that the Egyptians must be worked even more ruthlessly than they were before. All of the oppression, death, and injustice that comes from this point on is rooted in Pharaoh's individual fear. This is how we know that we can't just talk about individual sin and stop it there, because when broken people are uh, given the chance to steward institutions, structures, and governance, their brokenness flows out into what they're stewarding. And that brokenness becomes broken legislation that ultimately targets people groups and creates death, destruction, and oppression in our world. The abuse of power to force people into submission, we see in verse 11, and then in verse 16, we see something that empires do when they actually fear that they're losing control. They produce, um, they produce their peace through force and violence and warfare, and they tell the people that this is what peace truly looks like. But we know as Christians that we serve the Prince of Peace, who actually tells us that priest, uh, peace does not ever come through violence, but it actually comes through love, um, it's sacrificial love. 
And when we see this, um, there are a couple things that uh, this passage is really helpful for us in when we talk about how it encourages us to choose fear or cling to fear rather than choose love. So when we go forward, we say, we see that in this passage, we see that giving faithful citizens exclusive accesses, access, privilege, and benefits keeps them compliant with what's going on in the status quo. It fosters division, and empires create a sliding scale between the haves and the have-nots, and those who have soon realize that they have a vested interest in sustaining the status quo. The privileged population, whether consciously or unconsciously, therefore becomes imperial ambassadors. And the final tool that the empire does to manipulate us to cling to fear rather than choosing love is they produce propaganda which targeted, targets, demonizes, and scapegoats a group in society for the whole society's problem. And they influence people to believe if we just didn't have this group of people, our economy would thrive. Our lives would be so much better. Our communities would be more, this much safer. And you start to think about people in a way that they're not people, but they're problems. And then you start to think about how do I deal with this problem so that we can have the safety, security, and an abundant life that God desires for us. And when you start to think about people in that way, then you slowly but surely start to dehumanize them, and the things that's okay to do for them would never be okay to do for you and your own. This is, a, this is the fundamental tactic of empire. And we need to understand how it leads us to be complicit with oppression and injustice in our world, rather than people who are called and summoned to bear witness to an alternative witness and the love and power and grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to flesh this out for us in our context in a minute. But before we go there, I want to give us one more biblical passage that helps us think about the countercultural witness that we're called to be about as Christians in a divided world. And so this passage is Romans 8, 12 through 17. Um, this is another critical passage with an if, because uh, we need to understand the conditional nature of this. It says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but to be received, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So I want you to pay attention to the ifs, because the ifs are important. The ifs are telling us this is not something that we can just assume that we are about as the body of Christ. There's still autonomy. We get to choose if we're willing to enter into the suffering that will bring reconciliation and peace and unity in our broken world. But all too often, we have assumed that just by being children of God, that means that we can be, we can, we cannot get our hands dirty in the work of reconciliation in the work of bearing a countercultural witness in the midst of worldly empires that have antithetical intentions to the gospel. And so let me make this really tangible for us and look at this in our context. So when we talk about this, the empire 
taught us in our nation to think about Native Americans initially as savages, as people who are less made in the image of God and people who needed civilization. And that legitimated a bunch of death, oppression, and genocide in our nation. But I want us to also keep this uh, close because it wasn't just that ancient reality. After um, the Native Americans who were able to survive the genocide that happened in our nation, we created uh, boarding schools where we enacted a cultural genocide, where as soon as the kids were brought into the school, they were forced to uh, take off all their cultural garb, they were forced to cut their hair, and they would be threatened to have their tongues cut off if they spoke in their native tongue. This was a cultural genocide in addition to the physical genocide. And we need to know that most of these boarding schools that were erected throughout the country were Christian boarding schools, and all of this violence was done in the name of Jesus, falsely done in the name of Jesus. But we have to reckon with this history as the body of Christ if we're going to go out and be reconcilers in the world, because people need to know that we know this history, that we're confessional about the ways that we've missed the mark, and we're intentional about trying to choose love in the face of fear today. When we talk about this, a group that we oftentimes don't think about or talk about is the history of the way that propaganda has produced fear that has actually oppressed our Asian American brothers and sisters. So these are actually uh, different images where there were professional cartoonists who were hired to depict Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners, people who could never truly integrate into our society, people who we should fear, and therefore it has led to oppressive legislation. But I want you to see the detail in the dehumanization so the picture in the bottom left, it says, no dogs and no Chinese allowed. You see the dehumanization. You're actually starting to equate people with animals in a way that legitimates a uh, different kind of treatment. Um, on the top one, it talks about how the Chinese eat rats. And again, you're trying to dehumanize other them in a way that w whatever comes afterwards, you don't have to have the ethical complications of what does it mean to treat somebody else made in the image of God this way. I would never allow anybody to treat me this way. So you slowly but surely start to dehumanize them. And we know that this leads to the Chinese Exclusionary Act, which is the first and only time in our nation where we have excluded a people or group from integrating into our country just because of their ethnicity alone. This lasts for 60 years. I want you to see how long we cowered to choose love in the face of fear, in, in the face of this propaganda that was being circulated. But this didn't just happen to the Chinese. We know after the Chinese, the same thing happened to the Japanese. And we had our beloved Dr. Seuss was hired to produce political propaganda. All these pictures are from Dr. Seuss that was depicting the Japanese as these people that we should fear in light of Pearl Harbor and the bombing of Nagasaki. And we ultimately know that this led to an us and them type of thinking the belief that Asian Americans were perpetual foreigners who could never truly become U.S. citizens or trusted U.S. citizens, and the belief that they were subhuman in some ways. That led to the Japanese Exclusionary Act, where we know that at that time in our nation, there were 127,000 people of Japanese ancestry living in our nation. We rounded up 120,000 of them and incarcerated them for no reason except for their ethnic identity. I want you to think about the weight of that. 120,000 people rounded up just because of their ethnic identity. No criminal activity, forced to live in incarceration for years. 60% of these people were US citizens. So when we think about what, what 
what was the witness of the church at this time when the fear was so palpable that we were rounding up people just because of their ethnic identity where was the counter witness of the church where was the body of christ saying that this is not ethically permissible this is not something that we can be complicit with i want you to see that there is this long history of us having the ability to choose love in the face of fear but oftentimes we've cowered back and been complicit with the oppression and injustice that's been going on to our brothers and sisters in large part because it wasn't happening to us and that is a worldly ethic where we are only concerned about oppression when it directly impacts us a christian ethic says that when we see oppression happening to anybody who is our brother and sister any of our neighbors we have an ethical and theological responsibility to step up speak up and show up for justice to call out unjust systems and name them for what they are. When we look at this, we also need to understand the depth of violence that this kind of ethic of only stepping up and speaking up when it happens to us allows to happen in our, in our world. So this is a quote from the governor of Mississippi in 1907. He says, if it is permissible, I mean, if it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched and it will be done to maintain white supremacy. When you're the governor of a state and you feel like you have the freedom to espouse this type of toxicity in front of your constituents, what it literally does is it opens up the floodgates of racial violence and it looks at vigilante groups like the Klan who intend to do this type of harm and says you can take the law into your own hands and you can do it with immunity because we're ultimately working towards the same end. But I want to stop there and say like we can't just reduce this type of violence to Klan activity. This is something that many more of us were complicit with um, and continue to be complicit with through our silence when we see violence happening to our brothers and sisters today. This is a picture of what would be known as uh, spectacle lynchings. Spectacle lynchings were these carnival-like experiences that all revolved around the desecration of the image of God in black people and uh, something that was created, a carnival-like experience that was created where black people would be um, hung uh, castrated many times, um, and um, tortured for entertainment. Uh, there will be professional photographers who were hired to come photograph the lynchings. That's why we have pictures like this. Um, those photographs would be mass reproduced and turned into postcards, and those postcards would be mailed out to families and friends, inviting them to future lynchings. Historians today actually say the spectacle lynchings socially function the same way that the NFL does for us today. They were the major social soiree of the community, and you would have people who came out in masses from grandparents to infants, and they would all come to participate in this. The largest spectacle lynching in our nation's history had 20,000 people who were present at it. I talked about people, just, I just want us to feel the depth of this. Uh, when I talked about the people having body parts cut off, we also need to know that those body parts would be jarred and sold to the crowd as souvenirs. There would be concession stands there, and this, there was an entire industry that was curated around this. Uh, from 1877 to 1952, we know that there were at least 5,500 black people who were ex uh, executed via lynching in our nation. So this was not something that, oh, this is one picture from one event. This was a normative reality for many black people in our nation. But it was not a hidden reality. This is a quote from Ryan Ho Niebuhr who says, if there was a drunken orgy somewhere, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was not in it. But if there was a lynching, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was in it. 
Choosing love in the face of fear is costly. But this is what we are commissioned to be about as the body of Christ. For Christians, and the other part of this reality, the reason why Niebuhr says this, is that spectacle lynchings most oftentimes took place on Sunday afternoon after church, and they were well attended by white Christians. To not be able to see a contradiction between going to praise Jesus on Sunday morning and go participate in that on Sunday afternoon is a failure of discipleship. There's nothing else that we can call that. And we need to understand how when we don't choose love in the face of fear, we become complicit with this type of activity in the world. And one of the biggest spectacle lynchings happened down the road from here in Omaha, where there were 15,000 people who gathered in 1919, this is the centennial of it, for Will Brown to be lynched. And so we, we have to reckon with this as the body of Christ if we're really going to be about the work of restoration and reconciliation. So let's talk briefly about the challenges of following Christ while benefiting from empire. So when one benefits from and finds comfort within the confines of empire, it's extremely difficult to divest oneself from its trappings. When the empire is understood as the source of safety, security, and abundant life, it slowly but surely becomes an idol, whether we're conscious of it or unconscious of it. Biblically, idolatry is anything we give ourselves to other than God. Therefore, we give uh, therefore, we, when we give our allegiance towards worldly empires, we fight to sustain the oppressive status quo that enables their financial prosperity because our hopes and our dreams are tied to it. But as Christians, we know the scripture tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Romans 12 tells us that we cannot conform to the patterns and the logics of this world, but we ultimately have to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. And when the, our minds are renewed, we see our brothers and sisters as what they really are, our family. We see other people who are being oppressed and exploited for the empire's benefit as people that we are called to step up, show up, and speak up for. We don't have the option of being silent in the face of oppression. We have to choose love in the face of fear. And I want to close with this video that talks about how proximity to those who are suffering actually fuels us in the fight for stepping up, showing up, and speaking up. It's so easy when we're not close to those who are suffering to actually be apathetic towards the suffering that they're enduring. So let's watch this video. Oh, let me go forward. Oh, nope. Could we please start it over real quick? Because the beginning is important. Thanks.
you never stop fighting for your own. I think that's a, a truth that m most of us know from our biological families where we're taught that you step up and you show up. Somebody can talk bad about your brother or sister. I mean, you can talk bad about your brother or sister, but can't, don't let nobody else talk bad about your brother and sister. There is this understanding of what it means to be family, to be in this together. And if there is one truth that we have missed in the, in the West, church is that we are each other's own, that we do belong to one another. It is not certain that we are not connected to certain people. We are all inherently interconnected as children of God, as creator, people made by our creator. And I had a th uh, seminary professor who said it this way. He said, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. He said that is except for scripture. Scriptures act, scripture actually tells us it's that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines. And it's baptism that actually redefines who our family is for us. And I believe that if the church ever went out into the world with the baptismal ethic of belonging, a belief that we truly were interconnected, that we would step up, show up, and speak up when we saw our brothers and sisters being oppressed. When we saw injustice targeting certain communities and certain people groups, we would go out and stand up rigorously for those people as if they were our own biological family. And we see this um, as the final message that Jesus actually gives us before he goes to the cross. So we see this in John 19, 25 through 29. He says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by her, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that point, from that hour on, the disciple took her into his own home. What I want you to understand about this passage is that Jesus is talking to a disciple who is racially and ethnically different than his mother. His mother's sister is standing right there. He doesn't say, take care of your biological sibling. He tasks someone else across lines of difference to actually envision themselves as being family and then to practically demonstrate their love as family by taking her into his home. I want you to think about the weight of the responsibility to choose love even when it's going to cost us. I think the, the fundamental question that the gospel is constantly raising for us in subtle ways and not so subtle ways is do we believe the gospel is still good news when it costs us something? And if I want us to walk away with anything from today's sermon is that we are called to be a countercultural people who make God's love known and shown in the world, and we do that by sacrificially choosing to love in the face of fear, even when it's going to cost us.